Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Consider this a confession of sorts. Knowing what I now know, it seems only prudent to unburden my soul. At the same time, I want you to disbelieve me. Every single stranger who initiates conversation with you wants something, and you should always try, before it's too late, to determine what it is they're trying to talk out of you. Some are bad at it, and you can tell they're asking for money or a favor before they even finish full sentence. I'm not bad at it. In fact, being not bad at it is how I ended up in the home of a young man who I'd guessed was about to be caught up in a storm. I'll tell you this. Anyone can get a private investigator's license. Never let a stranger into your home. No matter what we say, we're not there to help you. Without asking permission, I moseyed over to the fridge, opened it, pulled out a beer. Do you mind? He was uncomfortable with my boundary pushing, but I towed the line perfectly. He shrugged awkwardly. Sure. If they give a foot, take 13 inches. I grabbed a second beer and showed it to him. I always drink two. One for me and one for my buddy. He frowned, visibly on the verge of telling me to put them back. Your buddy? Yeah, I said, sitting down at the large, comfortable chair opposite him. Killed in action. Oh, he hesitated, his annoyance losing its momentum. You served? It's a good idea to have at least two units tour of duty memorized. One recent, and one not so recent. That way you can tailor your response against the age of your audience, because getting caught in the lie about the military can get you physically beaten. Since he was younger, I told him about the not so recent one, and he nodded awkwardly. Not giving him time to dwell on it, I crack open the first beer and took a gulp and then said, So what were you, high when you jumped from that roof? He tensed. Nothing. (laughs) Relax, I said with a grin. I took another sip of beer to remind him without words that I wasn't a cop. I'm not going to bust you. I'm just trying to get the whole story. 
Fine, he offered, just before going big with his lie. We were on crack, and we just jumped off the roof because we were stupid. Now this was unexpected. He was still trying to hide something, but that something was very different than I'd been guessing. That's not what your friend Kurt said. His expression sharpened. Who'd you say you're investigating for? Gabriella's parents, I said confidently, even though I was immediately aware I completely whiffed. Citing the parents of a kid her age was usually a good bet, but every so often it turned out there was a sob story or a tragic loss that completely screwed you over. He stood, extremely angry. I think you should go. I knew when to call it and run, but something about this whole situation galvanized me to push it a bit further. Just tell me the name of the dealer that sold you Remy, and you'll never see me again. His face turned bright red with fury. Ah, oh, shit. Another strike. One more, and I'd be in big hurt. What Hail Mary could I throw here? Gabrielle is not the only one that's been hurt. I've been paid a lot of money to make sure Remy goes away. He relaxed ever so slightly after taking in my words. Whew. It'd been 50-50 on that lie, at best. As I left, I chugged the open beer in his yard and threw it into his bushes. The second stashed under the passenger seat of my beat-up piece-of-shit car for later. I hadn't even really wanted them. I just hadn't been able to resist an opportunity to take something so unabashedly. In any case, I'd succeeded and come away with a name. About six hours later, I donned a hipster t-shirt, mused up my hair a little, and approached the guy in question. Unlike me, he was unaware that his new drug had caused a debacle and been noticed by the police after one of the three kids had squealed. The police were far too open about details on their radio channels, especially when it came to strange cases, and weighted down by the bureaucracy, they were slow. I was not. Hey, what do you got? I asked the dealer, pretending to be younger than I was. He studied me with bloodshot eyes, but the party was dark and I could pass for 25 on a good day. Depends on what you got. Because a single hundred dollar bill would have been suspicious, I held up two crumpled twenties, three fives, and thirty random one dollar bills. The dealer suppressed an eye roll and put on a casual smile that even I had trouble detecting as fake. Alright, dude. I got something for you. It's new. He held out his hand and showed me a little bag filled with circular dark blue pills. What the hell's this? I asked, fishing for more information as I turned the bag over in my hand. Remy, he said quietly, taking one and swallowing it in front of me. It's perfectly safe and an awesome trip. Guarantee you've never experienced anything like it. Put you into rim dreaming while you're still awake. 
So far, Kurt had been telling the truth. Did that extend to the rest of his reported nightmare? Pocketing the bag, I grabbed the man's arm and flashed him my private investigator's license with my free hand. Tell me where you got the pills, asshole. He cowered for a moment, as if about to crack, but it was only a diversion. He used the motion to get better leverage and twist out of my grasp. I chased after him, and we both ran out of the party and down an alley. There was profit here. I could practically taste it. Some newbie had created a new drug, and it was about to explode in popularity once the media got wind of it. I didn't know exactly how I would make money off this yet, perhaps by taking this amateur dealer's job, but I knew what money there was would be huge. For that imagined payoff, I ran top speed down a series of alleyways while the dealer continually swallowed more of his pills. Was he trying to get rid of the evidence? I came to the entrance of a long box canyon between two buildings and froze. Imagine you're in a theater. Imagine you're watching a movie. The main character, me, has been told about something impossible repeatedly, but has now seen it himself. The camera speeds closer to his face while zooming out, giving you that classic horrified perspective shot backseat by rising adrenaline crescendo. That was this moment. The dealer had literally vanished into thin air while I'd been watching him, and my heart had skipped a beat in my chest. I'd been right about one thing. He was an asshole. He'd known that taking too much Remy allowed physical access to some sort of dream layer of reality, and yet he'd still sold it to unsuspecting college kids. Did he simply think they'd stick to one or two pills and thereby remain safe, or was it more sinister than that? As I stood there and blinked in stunned surprise, I began to wonder if something deeper was going on here. All my leads had been flipped, so I only had one left. The pills themselves. I drove home and sat in my living room with that little bag and the beer I'd taken earlier that day, both sitting on my table like forbidden fruits waiting to be consumed. I had a general idea of what to expect, but the fate of that girl in the hospital still gave me pause. As long as I don't overdose, I'd be fine, right? No, bad idea. You never take your own product. I could just sell these tomorrow. After examining them for any sign of a creator's stamp and finding none, I left them on the table and stood outside on the porch to smoke a cigarette and drink my lone beer. My backyard was small and full of random debris from storms a few months earlier, but tonight there was someone standing in the far corner. Hey, I shouted. Get out of here. This is private property. He didn't move. I stormed toward him, angry, until something about his manner locked me in place halfway to his corner. He started my way expressionless, yet that lack of expression somehow itself held an utter hopelessness. He'd been alone so long that the very instinct of moving one's face with emotion had been beaten out of him by endless disappointment after disappointment. I could almost 
feel this truth in an aura filling his fenced corner. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'd taken one of the pills. How had I forgotten that? That seamless transition from waking to dreaming, in this case, both at once, had elusively slipped through my conscious grasp. I stepped to the right, and he followed me smoothly with his haunted gaze. The worst part, for me, was that he wasn't asking for anything. I expected everyone to have a scam. I expected everyone to try and imitate conversation and run something on me. This guy, with his pale features and forlorn manner, had truly given up all hope. I see you, I said tentatively. Everything about him changed. His shoulders lifted, his eyes narrowed, and his lips parted. He pointed at the half-empty beer in my hand. Can... He rasped for a moment, then managed to continue. Can I have a sip? Just a little bit. Weary, but enthralled by this surreal stranger in my backyard, I crept forward and held out the can. Watching his eyes, I pulled it back at the last moment, evading his slow grasp. Wait... There was some kind of pained need in his gaze, something that I recognized very well. You don't want to do this, do you? I held out the can again, this time saying, Make the choice not to take it. He strained against his own weakness, but then pulled his hand back and looked at me without most thanks. From one moment to the next, he was there, and... Then he was gone. I stared at the empty space where he'd been standing. On some level I understood. He'd been an alcoholic in life. He'd probably ruined his family or gotten him killed. It had probably ruined his family or gotten him killed. That meant, like that boy Kurt had told me, I'd just been speaking with the dead. Panicked, I darted back to my apartment. It was a rundown place, one of a long series I had talked my way into and then continually avoided paying rent on, but it was my only current refuge. There were two rooms, a combination kitchen and living room, and a bedroom, and the latter seemed to now contain two guests lying still under the sheets. 
Despite the blankets over their faces, I could sense them staring at me in the same way the other man had. I'd been lying between them unknowingly for weeks, but I now knew I had certainly felt their unblinking eyes on me in the solitary hours of the night. Grabbing the bag of pills from the table and running out to the street in a vain attempt to find a moment to get a grip, I ended up plunging headlong into the dream's strengthening effects. Light poles became trees and then pillars. Buildings changed and morphed at the edges of my vision. I'd done my share of tripping, but it was infinitely more stressful knowing that portions of this could actually be real. What was a dream? What was spiritual? Those kids had spectrally interacted with recently deceased human beings, but Kurt had been able to tell me what his friends had gone on to see. Whatever it was, it had scarred them bad enough that they jumped from the roof of a burnt-out house. Standing there on that lonely pavement among quietly shifting urban canyons, I thought I could feel something out there in the limitless expanse of the dreams that ranged far deeper than the stars in the sky or the curve of the earth on the horizon. Something deep in unknown darkness and across black oceans radiated an intrinsic unhallowed vibration so far-reaching and powerful that it seemed to subtly warp all creation. My fear brought me in tune with it, letting me sense some sliver of power, and I shook. The size, unimaginable, the power, immeasurable. Every fiber of human instinct within me twanged with long, evolved response. Run away. Hide. But despite the halo of dreaming numbing my senses, I also felt more awake than I'd been in years. Like that fellow alcoholic in my backyard, I'd let the despair of certainty and physical reality chain me. I'd let my hopes get strangled by office chairs and great cubicles until I realized that in such a mundane and pathetic world, I could lie my way into almost anything I wanted. Why work when you could just take? But even that escape had just been a tunnel dug into another cell in the same prison. Now I knew that our earth and our existence were tiny and meaningless in the face of a universe far bigger than we could ever comprehend. We were like barnacles clinging to a rock in the ocean, and that meant, wonderfully, that I knew nothing. I'd been wrong about life. My hope must have flared like a tiny little beacon on the fabric of dreams, for I felt an answering ray of darkness shoot out from an infinite distance. That black beam of awareness scoured the dreamscape, searching, screaming, extinguishing. My impression of it was that of an anti-lighthouse, not warning away for safety, but seeking to pull in and consume. An anti-lighthouse powered by a dark flame of fear with the intensity of a black star. This was that cosmic unknown beast that I had sensed, whose mere aura warped dreaming into nightmares. I ran alive with both fear and excitement. This far away, my best chance was to hide and blend in with the boundless dreamscape like so many tiny humans before me.
Their escape was always instinctual and automatic, waking at the last moment before it caught them, but that avenue was closed to me. I was already awake. A large, silent crowd stood in place and stared at me as I dashed onto the open grass. Even with that black beam roving the worlds above, this place gave me pause. Each child, man, and woman stood in front of their own weathering headstone, watching passerby from their quiet plots of earth and grass. The legion roar of that searching darkness approached, touching upon the dream-sculpted towers of the city proper on the horizon. I could see the awake security men and janitors inside, even at this distance as they shivered and looked over their shoulders. One guard was slumped in his chair, dozing off, and I saw his aura stutter and strangle as the black surged around him. His scream of absolute terror joined to the others eternal. I shouted for his fate aghast. The beam began swinging closer. The dead saw this and began slowly moving their arms, beckoning me among them. My every nerve surging with terror, I ran deeper into the graveyard, settling in my last scant moments on a spot marked by an ancient headstone that had been worn too much by time to remain legible. I stood facing forward like the rest of the various ancestors around me, noticing that some of the number on the plots had no spirit to accompany stone, dirt, and grass. Like the man in my backyard, some number of them had found resolution and... What? Where did they go after this? Absolute pain and horror exploded through every cell in my body as the graveyard blackened. It was not darkness in that sense of nothing. It was anti-light so that the trees and headstones and spirits became negative silhouettes outlined in an electric gray. Each of the spirits clenched their fists and gaped their mouths, but none made a sound. Despite the pain, one old woman turned her head, kept her eyes on mine, and struggled mightily to put a finger to her lips, warning me without words to remain silent. If I made a single noise, he would pick me from the crowd in an instant. The full intensity of the beam reached us. I was on a vast ocean of screaming and tortured souls, above, below, in every direction, like a fog of faces and haunting pains. I was just a boy, and my father roared at me with fiery eyes and raised his hand, but I held in my terrified scream. I was old and alone, having never been so much as intriguing to any woman. I sat and bitterly stared at passing couples, but I held in my groan of lifelong remorse. I was myself just a few years before, staring at a great cubicle wall and seriously considering the merits of suicide because of the sheer pointlessness of it all, but I held in my muttered curses. At long last, the screaming darkness went for broke, inflicting every bruise, cut, or burn I'd ever experienced or might ever experience all at once, and then every heartbreak, every loss, every moment of nostalgia or random sadness. 
I cried silently, racked by immeasurable torture, but the old woman's gaze locked on mine, let the pain flow out of me and into the surrounding spirits who suffered with me for my sake. And then it was all over. Colors surged back into the positive spectrum. I fell to the earth, tears streaming from my blurred eyes. Every blood vessel swelled, every nerve on fire, every muscle caught in spasms. I choked and coughed and sobbed and bled from my ears and nose, but I'd survived. Blinking to clear my sight, I looked up in thanks at the human spirits that had cloaked me in the crowd and borne part of my pain to keep my mind whole, but... They were shaking and trembling with their own after-effects. Only the old woman smiled at me, and I suddenly felt like every scam and con I'd ever pulled had been some sort of crime against the bond of human goodness that did exist between us after all. That hurt almost as much as the untold nightmare that the beast in the infinite distance had inflicted upon me merely by gazing in my general direction. I rolled on the chill earth, ruined but straining to move. The beam was coming back my way. That moment of utmost need warped the dirt under my gaze, and I tumbled into a deep tunnel between the graves that I'd shifted into through the force of pure, unadulterated desire. Rolling down a slope that adjusted its tilt to keep my momentum up, I slid away from that horrible sea of energy as it blurred past. I sent out a silent apology to those buried men, women, and children who would have to suffer that experience a second time. Lying there in darkness, hugged close by dirt on every side, I just breathed for several minutes and tried to recover my faculties. As my heart rate slowed, I began to feel a little strange, and I got out my cell phone to see where I was by its light. I saw two images, a small circular tunnel through the earth and dirt right up in my eyes. I started trying to comprehend it until it hit me. The Remy was wearing off. I was about to return to reality 50 feet under a graveyard. I scrambled at the loose slope but only managed to slide further down. Panicking, I began to envision what it would be like to suddenly become one with compressed dirt. Would I suffocate? Would I be crushed? Or would I just die instantly as earth molecules appeared all throughout my body? After surviving that brush with true nightmare, I was going to die down here. No, wait. I still had the pills. I pulled them out of my pocket and put ten of them in my mouth, and then spit out eight, thinking of that poor girl whose face I'd seen through a windowed hospital door. Remy was fast-acting when a person had already taken one. I'd seen the dealer do it to escape me. I wondered if the chemistry of the human mind was more open when already partially in the dream state. The dirt disappeared from my sight as the new pills kicked in, and the dream tunnel became more real. Forcing myself to calm down, I did the only thing I could. I crawled deeper. The close walls circled ever narrower until I had to push forward with my shoulders to scrape dirt away. 
For a beat, I'd feared I'd be trapped forever, but the tunnel I dreamed into existence seamlessly became a rectangular air vent, wide enough for me to crawl faster with relief. A distant male voice echoed through the ducts. I hate this place, man. I crept up to a grating and looked down upon two men talking among several pallets of unmarked boxes. Immediately, I remembered why I'd come here in the first place. My subconscious had drilled down to where I'd needed to go. One of the men turned his head to look behind him warily, and I recognized him as the dealer I chased. What are you worried about? The other asked. Just keep a low profile and avoid other people's dreams and you'll be golden. Something out there way worse than what happened to Ricky. The dealer hissed. I felt it looking for us. We're not supposed to be here. Look, you got me. The other man shoved a tied stack of hundreds into his hands. Now do your job. And stop talking about Ricky. He was dumb and wandered into someone's nightmare. That's on him. Ignoring those ominous words, I stared at the stack of hundreds. There it was. I'd known from the start that there would be a payoff somewhere in all this. Were all these people actually using a warehouse in dreams to traffic drugs? As I watched the dealer grab a box and carry it out of sight, the genius of it all struck me. Cops could never raid this place, never trace supply lines, never even garner a clue where the product was coming from because the dealers would be waking up in a bed with a box that had appeared from nowhere. For that matter, where did the pills come from? Did someone create them in the lab or were they themselves dreamt into existence? With a grin, I focused on my hand and a stack of bills appeared between my fingers. I thought my troubles were over, but my moment of triumph faded as I leafed through them and realized they were blurry and that the text upon them changed every time I looked at them. Son of a bitch, they weren't real. But a pile of stacked cash on the table below was. I just had to wait for the supplier to leave and... I trembled and fought a wave of fear and nausea. As much as I wanted that money, the animal my brain rode around in had not forgotten the trauma I'd just been through, and the prospect of more adrenaline and danger had my body rebelling. All I wanted was to find a safe place to hide until the dream wore off and I could go home. It's alright, I told her. Let's just get that money, and then we'll never stress again. Easy beers and burritos for years. And yet, still, I couldn't move. I kept reliving shadows of that invasive darkness, right up until I looked ahead rather than down and saw a form approaching in the duct. Not a shadow or anything related to darkness. That was the first relief. But as it continued to move oddly, what had appeared to be a distant gray silhouette sharpened into something that was actually much closer. I stared until it hit me. I was looking at a blank gray humanoid shape. And it was crawling toward me. 
The sudden physical threat lifted my paralysis, and I crawled forward and right down another path as the clamoring noise of the specter quickened. I was already tired and my muscles were burning, but I gripped my teeth and crawled as fast as I could along the cramped metal. Coming to a T-junction over a grate, I looked both ways and saw a second and third gray silhouette clambering toward me from both directions. There was only one way out. Kicking the grate open, I slid down and fell into the open air. Half expecting to jolt away at the last second, I yelped in surprise as I slammed into a wide pallet of boxes and rolled onto the floor. Staggering up as quickly as I could, I first looked up where three blank gray faces watched me from the vent but did not pursue. Around me the warehouse was empty. The supplier had departed. Creeping along, I found the table stacked high with cash and stuck stacks in every pocket. Hell, why not? Pulling on an old trick, I put a couple down in my underwear too, just in case I got caught. Tense, near to the point of passing out, I decided it was time to go while my luck was good. Grabbing a few bags of Remy from the boxes I'd smashed, I crossed the warehouse space and peered around corner after corner before deciding each hallway was safe. Where was this place? Did it correspond to a real location? While so deep in the dream state, there was no way to tell. My primary hope was to go up in case I was still somewhere underground, but the rusted old maintenance door I found led right out to the cool night street. Objects on the edges of my vision still morphed and changed when I wasn't looking, but I was back. Exultant, but keeping calm and nonchalant, I walked until I was certain I was out of danger. At that moment, I ran, laughing and triumphant. My shitty apartment seemed beautiful in its offering of privacy. I was going to pay rent for once, maybe even clean up the debris in the backyard. After closing the blinds, I pulled all the cash out and placed it on the table to counter to make sure it was all real. And then I hid it under my mattress. I remembered the two silent blanket-covered watchers on the bed, and I knew they were still there, but I couldn't see or sense them now that the Remy had worn off. Screw it. One more night in between them couldn't hurt. I lay in the darkness for a time. My trauma assuaged by my success, but sleep came fitfully in the full of nightmarish flashbacks. I awoke around dawn, not nearly rested, but energized by happiness. In my flashbacks, I'd had time to process some of the things I'd seen, especially in that black river of pure torture. Among the screaming faces, I now recognized one. The girl I'd seen through that window door at the hospital. No. I couldn't do anything about it. I'd gotten away with that money scot-free. There was no connection to me whatsoever. It had been dark at that party, and I'd put on different mannerisms for the dealer. I could walk past him right now and smile and say hello, and he'd never even suspect. I had the cash. I was home free. Just forget about it. But that dead old woman's gaze haunted me, reminding me of what I'd learned. God damn it. God damn it.
I didn't know where the comatose girl was, or if it was even possible to save her, but I did know the direction from which Infinite Nightmare had sought to extinguish my small flare of hope. I wrestled with this idiot idea for hours, telling myself that this was how people got killed in movies, that stupid choice to go back or to do something foolish after seeing the truth of the danger. But I found I didn't really have a choice. I could either do this or go back to hating life with the added despair of hating myself. No. The small seed of true living hope that I found in that other world is more precious to me than any other possession. I know it's stupid, but I have no choice. I have to tell that kid that his friend is still out there. Such a bad idea. This was such a bad idea. I knocked again. The door swung open and an air of sadness immediately burned hostile. What the hell do you want? I took it, I told him, shivering as I did so. I took Remy, and I saw her there. He watched me for nearly eight heartbeats, judging my sincerity. My purposeful shiver had likely sold the deal. Alright. He moved out of the way, wordlessly inviting me in. And no, you cannot have a beer. I sat tall on his couch. Tense. Let's start over. Call me Porter. He moved unhappily to the chair across from me. Is that your real name? No. It's important we stay disentangled from the men we might run into, and from each other. I see. Then call me Guy. Just Guy? Just Guy. Now tell me what you claim you saw. I leaned forward and put my hands on the living room coffee table to draw out unseen concepts with gestures. I explained the lighter details of my search, the heavier details of that horrible experience, and the anti-light of the beast's gaze, and my recollection of his friend Gabby's face among the countless tortured souls within. I believe you, Guy said, sighing. Or I believe you took Remy and dreamt you saw her. It was her, I said calmly, or else I wouldn't be here. Why are you here? Forgive me if I don't assume you just care too much. Fair point. I turned my head and looked out the window at the chill afternoon street where men walked family dogs and women ran by with headphones on. This was the view. This was always the view. Some long, unexpressed sense of stasis prompted me to finally ask, Have you ever noticed that it's always fall? He rubbed his eyes tiredly. That's impossible. I I remember that it was summer when we... He frowned. When you what? I asked. He fought off exhaustion and stood. Wait... 
We took Remy, didn't we? I nodded. I think we did. So much for all that planning. I can't remember what we talked about now. Or what we were supposed to do, he said, moving to the window and studying the shifting houses on across the street. Didn't you have some idea where we should go? I know the direction the beast is in, I told him, standing and flexing my fingers against the strange dragging inertia of entrance into the dream state. I can still feel it out there, like it's slightly bending absolutely everything. But going near it would be stupid as hell. He snapped his fingers. The drug dealers. Yes. A bit of a plan flared back into focus. The creator of the pills must know something. No way whoever it is makes this distribute something like Remy without having a bit of knowledge about this. Hell, I felt super hopeful just once, and it tipped off that thing and nearly got me, I don't know, caught? And why you, Porter? Guy asked, remembering more himself. Why don't most of the other users suffer the same way? I've since seen people take it and tool around with it without a care in the world. It was only you and my friends that stumbled into nightmares. Bad trips, I said. Maybe like other drugs, they're rare and random. Maybe. He moved to the door and flung it wide, exposing the afternoon street beyond, where men still walked family dogs and women still ran by with their headphones on. Where to? I don't actually know. I sat down to the cold sunlight and tried to get a feel for the constantly changing suburban blocks around me. The dream world's weird. You just kind of end up finding what you're seeking, Guy said, simply and grimly. Yeah. That way, then. I turned left and we began walking down the sidewalk together. For a time, it was actually a little awkward. I'd expected immediate adventure, but now we were just two guys on a walk. So, what's this girl to you? I asked, breaking the silence. A good friend, he responded. Her parents died a while back. Nobody left to go after her but me. I grew wary. You got some sort of hero complex? That kind of thing gets people killed. No. I accepted his answer for the moment, because the sky was bruising amazing shades of orange and purple. It had been night last time I'd taken Remy, and this was wholly unexpected. Is that the sunset? Massive flares of painted pleasant neon roiled above, and both of us stared in wonder. My vision slowly fell to a warehouse much closer than the sky. That's it! We opted to walk rather than sneak close, hoping that we would look like random pedestrians if someone saw us. That proved to be unnecessary, for no guards were stationed around the warehouse. It made sense, actually. The place wasn't even accessible from the real world. Who would they be guarding it from? Hallway after hallway rolled by until I held Guy back from the last corner and peeked around it. Nobody's home. 
that too made sense. It'd be rather difficult to stay on Remy more than temporarily without overdosing. This time, several safes had been set up in the middle of the floor. I knew it was for the cash, and prompted by the stacks I'd taken, given how strange the dream world was, they hadn't assumed someone had compromised the operation, but they'd taken precautions nonetheless. Ignoring the pallets of boxes filled with pills, Guy studied some of the papers on a large table near the safes. They keep changing. I took one, read it, looked away, then read it again. They're not real. Then are there any leads here at all? I was about to say no and perhaps suggest waiting for suppliers to make a drop off, but I already knew that might take days or longer. When I looked up, my eyes caught upon a subtle distortion at the other end of the pallet farm. What is that? We moved closer. I stared up at the ceiling as I passed, but I saw no evidence of the ventilation system I'd previously used to access the place, or the gray forms that had cornered me within. Without mentioning it, I turned my attention to the disturbance ahead. Up close, it had the vague, wavy outline of a door, albeit one formed of heat shimmers. Guy's hand went right through it. This just can't be some random thing we dreamt up. I tried my hand, too. How do we access it? We've only got one variable, he said, pulling some dark blue pills out of his pocket. Had I given him those? Here goes nothing. He downed one without hesitation and then took several deep breaths. His next attempt to reach out succeeded, and he turned the ethereal knob and pushed the door open. Water sloshed out onto the floor, spilled over by the undulating energy of the ocean, whose surface ran almost exactly level with the base of the door. The dark blue waters mirrored the open sky, offering nothing but an endless expanse. We both gazed out for a time, mystified, until he decided to take a leap of faith without consulting me. I almost shouted until he landed on something just under the splashing water. Looking close, we can now see the molted dark blue marble just beneath the surface, forming a nearly invisible walkway under the deep ocean. This is it, he said, moving forward. I know it. Testing my footing, I stepped carefully onto the walkway. I hadn't taken a second pill, but it seemed I could follow him anyway now that the door had been opened. The threshold felt strange, like a thin membrane stretched across my face and hands until it broke, and some part of me instinctively understood that this was something new. A level deeper, a level higher. The strong sea breezes felt amazing and free. Those same breezes became the primary threat as we inched our way along the narrow and hard-to-see blue marble. My shoes and ankles were soaked instantly, and the lapping waves upped that chill splash to my knees, especially when the wind strengthened. Looking back often, I watched as the door shrank in the distance, leaving us fully out on the open sea. I'm not too sure about this. I lost Gabby on the ocean, he shouted back. This wouldn't be here if they didn't use it. That seemed reasonable, but I never had a chance to agree. 
A particularly strong wave hit me, and I fell to the wet blue marble and slipped halfway off. Gripping the other edge of the stone and kicking my legs against the surprisingly powerful current pulling on my legs, I roared for help. Guy came running, but he'd been quite far ahead. I had the space of a dozen rapid heartbeats to truly feel the vast darkness of the ocean, cold and endless below my kicking feet. I thought I could sense something approaching, like some horrible creature that might swim up and grasp my legs any moment. Who knew what might reside in this layer of the dream world, or within the dark depths of those completely unknown waters? Guy helped lift me up, and I clung to the marble and tried to still my racing pulse. Adrenaline still burned in my veins, so I stayed close as we made our way more carefully along the narrow marble. We sighted a dark line on the horizon, and then we were there a tick later, jumping from the abrupt end of the marble onto bright reddish-orange sand, the color of a deep sunset. It was there that we first saw evidence that something was seriously lacking in our understanding of the dream world. A weathered stone face about ten feet high rested at an angle in the fire stand, and vacant eyes staring out over the ocean at some unknowable ancient destination. The gray rock was pocked and weathered and fully real to the touch as far as we could tell. Someone had actually carved this eons ago. This was no dream statue. Porter. It used to point the way. Guy realized. Look, it's almost facing the underwater marble path. I lined myself up and judged the perspective. I think you're right. At that angle, the sun was also in my eyes, which begged a certain question. Didn't we see the sunset earlier? Why is it light here? He put a shading hand to his forehead and looked up at the sky, but found no answer. We slogged along the fire sand beach, slowly finding more evidence of ancient habitation until I began to grow inexplicably weak. I fell to my knees in the sand and sighed with exhaustion. You're disappearing, he said quickly, handing me another pill. We have no idea where they are. Take this before you end up back in some random place in the real world. I swallowed it and watched as my translucent hands returned to opaque. That should be a priority. Which? Mapping the overlay of the dream world to the real world, I said, remembering now that we had actually talked about this just before taking the drug. It might help if we knew which part of the world corresponds to which part of the dream world. Skip ahead on future trips. You think we won't find her tonight? He asked, suddenly crestfallen. Damn it. His obvious pain was actually getting to me, despite my repeated mental warnings that I should keep attachments light. No, oh, man. This was just our first scouting attempt. He took that with grim grace and turned away. I think there's something up ahead. He was right. A vast stone wall, as ancient as the other remnants but in much better repair, spanned the way ahead of us, beyond the fire dunes, to deep in the ocean itself. 
This was definitely something. We both tried to run it, but found the effort weirdly futile. Walking measuredly to the wall instead, and seeing no other way but climbing over it, we used weathered and pitted handholds to begin our ascent. I snapped awake in my cubicle and immediately began clicking and typing out of pure habit, something I'd learned to do to avoid being caught sleeping. Already, that dread despair that had surrounded my life in the office began closing in. Seeking any distraction, I turned in my chair. Guy, have you seen the week's reports? He turned to look at me and said, Yeah, hold on, I'll email them to you. We both slid back to our monitors and keyboards and froze. I think this is my dream, I said, looking around for familiar nightmarish clues. No, I think it's mine, he responded. I shook my head. I have nightmares about when I used to work in an office. He frowned. I have nightmares about having to go work in an office when I graduate. Fair enough. I stood, picked up my monitor, and threw it on the ground. It bounced unharmed and returned to the desk. Damn it. I tried to leave, but found every exit blocked by a smooth gray cubicle fabric. The gray reminded him of something. Wait, aren't we climbing a wall somewhere? I shook my head roughly and then scrambled to hold on to stone as I shot up from the depths of some sort of dream bubble our mutual fears had created together. He was already falling past me, and I caught him reflexively. My dream strength was minor, but it was enough to snap him out of it, and he grabbed the wall beneath me and swung hard against it. I grinned down at him. <laughs> Try to stay focused. Yeah, you too. We climbed on. The top of the wall was impossibly high in the air, and we gazed down upon a tremendous city of gold and bronze. There were no spires and domes. Flat roofs dominated the architecture. I wondered if I could find an opportunity to peel up some of that gold lining from the tan brick buildings. My planning stopped as Guy asked, Where do you think we are in the real world? Somewhere high up, clearly. Were we... On a radio tower, looking out over the city, or was this place purely in dreams? He pointed to the distant harbor, where one elaborate wooden vessel stood out among the others, enormous and dark. That's the boat! Which? The one I lost Gabby on. He began to climb down the other side of the high city wall. Whose boat is it? I asked, following. I nearly slipped when he said, Deaths but surely he couldn't have meant the actual concept and reaper himself. Maybe he was just being overly poetic. We reached the street and stepped down into a flow of people that either hadn't noticed or hadn't cared about our climb. I tried to focus on faces, but got nothing more than blurs and vague expressions. We were cramped and cowered, but I couldn't be sure whether we were actually still alone. Their clothing was unlike anything I knew. Primary colors were dominant, but only in patches and strips on rugged browns and blacks. Is this where the pill comes from? Guy seemed unhappy. 
Do they carry the boxes over that wall every time? He pushed deeper into the maze like streets, and I knew he was heading for the harbor. The tanstone alleys would not cooperate. Angled, twisting, and labyrinthine. They always offered easy passage with the swiftly flowing crowd, but they never actually seemed to lead anywhere useful. Guy began moving faster, and I changed my stance to that of a slow run to keep up. A few rapid turns later, I realized that we were both running, not in that open and free sense that dreams made impossible, but in a desperate attempt to keep up with the quickening crowd that pushed and jostled and threatened to trample us should we slow or fall. We both realized we were in some serious trouble at the same time. We have to get out of this flow, I shouted. Look for anything that we can climb on. But the smooth walls had lost all their windows, doors, and open shops. Blurry hands began pushing at me, and a choir of distorted voices demanded that I go faster. Pushing to the physical limits of my speed, I ran as fast as I could alongside Guy, and even then sensing the crowd's feet nipping at my heels. Swept along, we swiftly approached a sharply angled turn that I guessed we would smash against with force. The narrowing alley had sped up the flow far too much. In fact, the walls had become so narrow. I shouted my idea, and we both attempted to leap at the very last moment. Throwing out my hands and feet, I managed to put pressure against both tan walls. Guy followed, slipped, and nearly fell, but caught himself at the last moment. We hung there, a rushing stream of heads passing by mere inches beneath until we found good angles and began pushing our way higher. As we inched up the alley, the walls seemed to grow higher and the ground stretched away, leaving us dangerously exposed to a fall. Neither of us had breath to talk, so we just kept at it until we came to the gold-lined edges of the flat roofs themselves. Oh, shit. What now? Guy asked. With my hands pushed flat against one wall and my shoes pressed hard against the other, it didn't seem like there was any way to actually grab the edge of the roof and climb on. Tiring, we remained there, a mile fall to the forcefully flowing crowd awaiting us. I held out a hand a few times, but I could feel the drop nearly happening. I have no idea, Guy said through gritted teeth. You hold on tight. I'll come and climb on top of you and get on the roof and then pull you up. How about I climb on top of you, I offered, almost out of strength. Fine, just hurry. He shakily moved his hands down one at a time and then followed with his feet, leaving him just short at the top. I put a hand out to my left, applied pressure, and then moved my other hand, sliding above him inch by inch. Ready? He just grunted. I left off the pressure of my feet and instead put my weight on him. He began sliding away under me and I grabbed the edge of the roof as quickly as I could. He fell and a terrible jerk pulled my legs straight down as he hung from my ankles. With both our weights on the tips of my fingers, I shouted, Go! He pulled at my jeans and my shirt to climb up and I did my best to block out the strain and hurt. Finally, he found the edge of the roof himself, slid over my head, and turned to pull me onto the warm gold. We were safe. That was close to the worst thing ever, I groaned, gazing up in pain at the dimming sky.
Trust me, he said. There's worse ahead. I believed him. Staggering along the rooftops until we'd both recovered, we approached the harbor from a high angle. Out of the thread of the alleys, we could now see bustling trade being undertaken by blurry-faced natives. Strangely, the faces of those men disembarking from the ships to deliver wares were clear and recognizable. I knew we'd found something important when I started noticing normal clothing among the lot, and then one man passed by with a familiar box in his arm. That's it. He's got Remy. Guy watched with narrow eyes, clearly angry at whoever was responsible for the drug. Staying low, he crept along the gold-lined edge, following the delivery man without being detected. We found ourselves on top of a massive stone warehouse by the docks as the sun truly began to set for the second time. Our quarry exited the warehouse empty-handed after a moment and headed for the docks. Figure out which boat he's unloading, I whispered, heading to a curious stone ventilation access. Leaning into it, I saw carved handholds allowing entrance. Climbing down, I began feeling a wave of nausea and exhaustion. Clinging to the lowest handhold, I peered into the vast dockside warehouse while my vision began doubling. I needed to take another Remy, but I also needed both my hands to stay on my perch. A pitch-black silhouette stood by the piled boxes of Remy. It turned its head slowly my way, and I found myself paralyzed by strange dark blue static. Ruby points of light began sliding around at the curve of that silhouette, some sort of horrible eyes about to see me. But the paralysis got to me first. Finally, in a free fall like I dreaded that entire climb in the alleys, I crashed down through branch after branch until finally hitting soft, mossy ground with a painful thud. It was cold. That much I sensed first, even when the wind knocked out of me. Crawling up, I saw that I was in a heavily forested area and that it was the middle of the night. That city of bronze and gold had not an analog in the real world, and I'd accidentally left my companion. A crashing sound somewhere close by in the trees signaled that he'd followed. Crawling over to his gasping and pained form, the thought of that terrible silhouette with the ruby eyes still chilling my heart. I groaned. Oh, we need a better plan. It had taken the better part of a month to scam our way into the job, but now that we were in, things were moving quickly. You were either in or not in these kinds of organizations. I just hoped we could go back out once this was all over. I wasn't sure why I was still helping, but I think it had something to do with embarrassment. Guy was fiercely focused and never wavered. I felt like a scumbag in comparison and didn't want to make that self-assessment grow. I'd never really thought about myself without an objective, critical eye before, but seeing hints of the true scope of existence had forced me to make a sober reevaluation of many things. It had begun with hope that there was actually something more, and then evolved into this mad quest to save one comatose girl from eternal torture. The city of gold and bronze glinted in the evening sun. High corners flashed colored bits of lights from the blazing sky, 
Carrying box after box from the sailing ships harbored across from the warehouse we'd found the month before, Guy and I did our best to shut up, blend in, and see what we could see. Death was not in attendance this time, and for that, I was utterly thankful. I was almost entirely sure that the horrid silhouette with ruby eyes hadn't seen me before I'd woken up, but this mere presence had left me permanently shaken. The Reaper was real and involved in the drug trade. Existence was far stranger than I could have ever guessed, unless something more sinister than profit was at stake. That night, with our unloading job done, we stood around in the warehouse with a half-dozen other guys and drank gray wine from curiously elaborate glasses who shared style with a source of renown for the Dream City's glass-blowing district. None of these men were cultured or particularly intelligent, undoubtedly a secret profile for the job, so the conversation centered around confusion. Were these dream people real? They appeared to have lives and eat and sleep and other things, but none of us had ever truly followed one to see all the various behaviors present in a continuous manner. It was possible they were all just imagined set pieces for an illusionary city. One bearded and solemn southern man asked, But who dreams it when we're not here? For that, we had no answer. They sent us home with pay with enough time to get back before sunset. Behind me, Guy lingered for just a moment and watched the sailing ships heave anchor, turn, and depart. I told him, don't draw attention. That's where we need to be, on those ships. We'll get there. Organizations like this are built on trust. I proceeded along the wharf to dispel any sense in the onlookers that he and I were associates, and the world began to change and fade as my Remy wore off. I found a good spot by then and arrived on my feet on a mossy patch of flat rock next to a creek in the woods that served as the Dream City's real-world analog. I saw several of the other guys on the long night walk out, but we each instinctively knew not to speak to one another. Off the job, we were not buddies. Once home, Guy and I sat around my table and drew maps of what we knew. The volume of product is nearly industrial, I told him, and I bet they have incredible distribution advantages because the distances in the dream world can be shorter. Like that forest we keep dropping into? It's 30 miles out of town, but we didn't walk nearly that far to get there. His thoughts were elsewhere. Even if we get on one of those ships, even if we find the source of all this, there's a solid chance they don't know anything about the beast. This could all be a waste. No. I snapped my fingers at him. Focus. There is no way an organization of this size knows nothing about that thing. It dominates their environment, and drug cartels do nothing better than navigating their environment. They know what this is and how it behaves. They have to. Mollified for the moment, he accepted that. I knew he was itching to do something, and that every day we delayed meant another eternity of suffering for his friend. I'd witnessed a small bit of it firsthand, after all, but I also knew that he was his own greatest liability. These Remy runners had 
no idea we had another agenda, and there was no way they would find out unless one of us did something stupid. In the meantime, during daylight hours, we went about our respective lives. He knew nothing of me, and I knew nothing of him, as was safe. However, when we met up to plan, we discussed how the world was changing. Remy was spreading quickly as the drug of choice in our city, and undoubtedly in many others. I had no doubt that would be the case. For most, it was a safe and amazing trip to another mode of existence. For some, it was a panacea for grief. At night, the local cemeteries became increasingly littered with high parents talking to their lost children, family members reminiscing with dead siblings, and do-gooders trying to provide absolution for unfinished business to any willing ghosts. The traffic balance of the hours shifted. It had become safer to meet during daylight hours when the ghosts remained unseen and unheard, even when Remy augmented one's senses. Far too many people were walking and driving about in the night. There was no media reports on any of this. Polite society refused to entertain the notion entirely. The news, obviously, stuck to the parroted talking points its owner had set forth. Police began cracking down hard on those who possessed any amount of Remy, but it didn't matter. Prohibition had never worked, and it only made the spread worse now as people developed connections and methods to buy Remy safely and anonymously. And that meant increased work for us. They already paid us well, but now we were in the dream world more or less full-time, unloading a growing number of ships and personally taking product to dealers when the organization became shorthanded. It wasn't the direction Guy wanted to go. We were interacting more with the real world and dealers rather than sailing across those unknown seas into deeper dream worlds, but I knew it was progress. The opportunity came when our boss ran afoul of strange morphic dream beasts that sometimes roamed the air above that dark blue marble pathway just under the ocean waters. It at first appeared to be a mocking white mask shrouded in a dark hood and tried to ensnare him in a black body bag, but Guy and I applied our knives and our perception of the thing became a floating blob of hungry dark blue goo that had wrapped a pulsating tentacle around the man's waist. We slashed to little effect, but Guy brought out a lighter. Did he smoke? i never seen him do so. And the slightest flame sent the nightmare blob floating away at speed. Boss looked to the other guys in our crew and berated them. Some made excuses about the path being narrow, but he spat tobacco chew at them with disgust. We were in. He didn't say anything about it, but I knew, especially when we were left alone with the shipment and cash for the first time at the warehouse we'd first infiltrated. The movements of men to other duties seemed random, but I gave Guy a heads up and we both went out for a smoke. He refused my offer of a cigarette. Meanwhile, I looked around in the shifting distance. Without giving away that I saw, I pointed to watchers. It was a test. We passed, of course. Guy's goal wasn't drugs or money, and my goal had yet to be defined. When Boss came back and there was not even a single pill or dollar missing, he said nothing and went about his work. Two days later, just before we went to unload more boxes from one of the sailing ships, he grunted and motioned for us to step aside. 
Two days later, just before we went to unload more boxes from one more of the sailing ships, he grunted and motioned for us to step aside. Two new recruits had taken our places. Boss stood against the ancient wooden railing and smoked a cigar while the minutes passed in ocean breeze silence. Guy and I stood unmoving. We had only to wait. His cigar finished, the older man threw it in the ocean. Ah, what the hell with it? It's hard to trust these days. You boys want a promotion? I took the lead in responding. Seems it's already been given. It has, boss. He meant his boss, since no names were used here. It's always looking out for fresh blood. It's when yourself wears on you, rots your brain, maybe. Your scum always seem to flow to the top, or power uh, corrupts. We're all three, maybe. He turned his milky eyes toward the sunset. It's beautiful, isn't it? Guy couldn't help himself. Sir, are you blind to the real world? Sir. <laughs> he gave a lifelong smoker's cough laugh. You're a good kid. Ain't your boss no more. Take another pill and we'll go on the ship. This was it. We'd never been allowed to stay in this shard of the realm past sunset, and we'd certainly never been told anything about where the ships went. While the crew manned the riggings and sail, Guy and I stood at the rail and watched as we sailed into the sunset in a rather literal manner. The sky came down to meet the dark waters in an actual blaze of gold and crimson fire as long as the horizon. The intense colored light and rolling steam surrounded us for a time, but there was not nearly the heat we expected. It occurred to me that I'd never felt hot in a dream before. I'd felt the effects of heat, such as sweating and exhaustion, but never heat itself. Guy didn't flinch. Determined, he waited for the next dreamscape to show itself. Without landmarks to break up the dream, we covered a great distance in a short time. The landmass ahead looked normal at first, but we both realized we weren't just seeing a beach by starlight. This was a desert, truly, and it was likely infinite in scope. Some distance back, there towered a titanic rectangular glass with one high corner cut at an angle. Stars beyond it were red, and the night sky was purple. Seven parallel beams of glowing dark blue light ran from somewhere within it out into our sky and off into the right, which I believed to be north. Like the door in the warehouse that had led up to the oceanic island that hosted the unnamed city of gold and bronze, this was a passageway to elsewhere, but infinitely grander in scope. The rising moon backlit the frame, and my knuckles went white on the wooden rails. I realized just how big the glass prism was. We can't turn back now, Guy murmured. I scanned the deck quickly, reconfirming how outnumbered we were. Trying to escape would seal our fate. The only way out was forward into the unknown. The ship ground right up onto the sand, and without a boss for the first time, we did our best to help. The crew waved us off after the first few loads and told us they had it from here. Go on ahead, they said, and don't stray. The gateway awaited we who would wander. Best to not enrage it. That's not ominous at all, 
I joked, but Guy was already making his way up to the starlit dunes. I followed as quick as I could, and we slogged our way across the sands toward that scraper of sky, that glass gateway whose seven beams of dark blue light traced perfect parallel paths toward the distant north for reasons I feared we would soon discover firsthand. Upon a roofless cathedral, pipes and walkways, distant wrenches beat a simple but rising rhythm of anticipation as oil-spattered men challenged us to succeed. We splashed down canals of metal between those populated walls while gear shifted in the unseen world. In the narrow gap of the sky above, red stars pierced purple haze above seven beams of dark blue light whose paths we mirrored beneath. I had but a brief moment to take this in, for the wrenches reached a crescendo, the rumbling stopped, and a released black and emerald spectral torrent made itself known behind us in the trench. Guy was not afraid. He ran as fast as he could and pulled ahead. I was the one to question how this was possible. We'd not been able to truly run in his previous two layers of dream. Something of the blur and haze of imagination had left us. We were slightly more real than before. Workmen lifted us up just before the noxious tide reached us. They laughed, clapped us on the shoulders, and then pointed the way. Miffed, Guy shrugged off their hazing ritual and took the lonely metal path they had indicated. I hurried after, keeping my gaze sharp for anything new. Were the laborers here dream folk like those blurry-faced denizens of the City of Bronze and Gold? These men had clear features and tired eyes. I suspected they might be real, but had no guess as to their tasks. Deeper into the citadel of steel, we found a raised platform where those in charge coordinated many various lights and sounds that approximated broken images of computers. If a blind man drew and a deaf man composed, their collaboration would have produced an equally disjointed device. I tried not to look. We were led to the edge of an open air and left to handle what shipments might come. Boss did not explain further than that, for these high circular loading docks were obvious in function. Once alone, Guy and I cautiously did a sweep of the area and gazed both up and down the outside of the citadel. Above, staggeringly complex pipes and machinery formed towering walls that were impenetrable, save for those seven slicing beams of blue that dominated the purple sky. Below, metal ended and carved stone began, running down to the desert floor like a dizzying distance below. It took me several minutes to understand what we were seeing. Look, I said quietly, pointing down. That's a nose, and those are eyebrow slopes. Does it mean something to you, Porter? It's an ancient stone face, just like the one back on that island that pointed the way toward our blue path in the ocean. They built this factory on top of it. Guy gazed out into the vast, featureless desert. And it's facing the way all the ships will come. I pointed up. And to the source of those blue beams. There was not yet any way to know what it meant, but we kept our eyes open and did our jobs. The ships came at irregular intervals. These were still of wood, but unlike our previous locale, these sailed upon the air itself with nothing more than a whisper. There were no engineers, 
They grew larger in our vision, swiftly and quietly, propelled directly underneath those massive blue beams as if somehow attached, and yet they were not attached, for they moved on their own volition when docking, and later when sailing off into the east or west rather than returning to the south. Of the crew, all were real men. They helped us load crates onto conveyors and then lingered to have a smoke and exchange complaints about football and the weather. Guy often offered his lighter but never smoked himself. In this new position, we spent another month. Beside me, Guy obtained an edge of anger and adrenaline while I found an odd calm in the high desert winds. Between ships, we waited in silence and I watched the hazy purple sky. Were the stars red because of the atmosphere here? If so, what was it made of? How could we breathe it? These were questions of exploration and wonder my suspicious and calculating mind had rarely entertained before. Perhaps that seed of hope budding behind my ribs was beginning to grow. There was so much more than I'd ever known. How could I... In my distraction, we dropped crate mid-transfer. It soared down, shrinking, tumbling, and possibly still falling as we all watched for nearly a minute, and I cursed. It happens every so often, Boss told us as she led Guy, me, and four other men to a secret hatch among the pipes. Don't sweat it. We'll just have to go retrieve it ourselves. Neither of us had possessed even an inkling that tunnels existed within that carved base. And I began to wonder in a manner of an odd child. Who'd built the stone face here? What tools had they used to carve and place such a titanic work? And why had they infested it with cramped tunnels that seemed slightly too small for all but boss? I focused on these questions to avoid feeling claustrophobic even as the rock continued to shrink around us almost imperceptibly slowly. I was last in line, and Guy was ahead of me, pushing forward at a determined speed. For a brief time, I greatly feared losing the line and wandering these tunnels for eternity, but we came to Hoon Stairs, and the space finally opened up to allow us to move and breathe more easily. That feeling of freedom faded as exhaustion set in. Hour upon hour, we slapped our boots on worn stone. I remembered with dismay how long it had taken for that crate simply to fall to the sand. We had to walk that distance downward now, and this particular dream world kept distances concrete and solid. There was no skipping ahead due to lack of landmarks. Something clicked in my thoughts. They'd chosen this dream world for the factory for exactly that reason. Physics was slightly more real here, and that was probably vital for mechanical works and processing chemicals. I felt triumphant as we finally reached the bottom. I just peeled back one small layer of the unknowable organization we faced. Yes, the physical laws here were far more real. We slogged through the sand, miserable as a group. In just a few steps, it was in my boots and socks, and it began working its way into my pockets, under my nails and my hair. This was a desert with a capital D. The dunes were ten times the height of a man, and the wind swept the clinging particles along like mud streams at the bottom of a recently disturbed lake. The crate was already half buried at the top of one such high dune. 
I paused a few steps behind the rest of the group and gazed upward. I've been right. Wearing a crown of intricate metal, the titanic carved face watched the distant southern horizon with vacant eyes. There was no way to get the crate itself back up there. Instead, Boss took account of the inventory inside and had us stuff our pockets with bags of liquid and powder chemicals while carrying the remainder in our arms. Keep an eye on each other, she warned. If even a single bag goes missing, you'll all suffer greatly. I gave Guy and me pause. We looked at each other and then at the other men who were equally glancing around with suspicion. So busy as we were with glaring, we didn't see the approaching wave until it was too late. Neon fuchsia exploded around us and the blasting wave of color erupted into vibrant, monochromatic life. Where there had been sand, there were now flowers. We stumbled along in the mass of life, which I saw to be the same painful neon from stem to petal. These flowers were not growing in the sand. Everything beneath us had become a morass of stems as complicated as the pipes of the factory crown high above us. That weathered stone face looked on, ignoring us as we screamed and clawed our way forward while trying not to sink into the quick flowers. Leave the product, Boss shouted. Survive! Some of the men yelled for us to flatten out, and Guy and I gripped hands and used the added weight to extract ourselves from the breezy depths. Crawling along on our stomachs, flowers, and our faces, we crept toward the stone landing where the steps to safety lay. Out of the neon fuchsia emerged a single, searingly yellow sunflower. Boss stared at it for a beat until it puffed spores into her face. She rolled to the other side, unconscious. Each of us saw it happen. A moment of sheer panic clasped all of our muscles. Guy roared. Knives! Given the ability to defend ourselves, we each whipped out our knives and began slicing away at any sign of yellow the instant it appeared before our eyes. Crawling away from the slowly fleeing group, I approached our unconscious boss, groveling before that impassive stone face with its industrial crown like it was an uncaring king and I was a desperate peasant. Under those seven blue beams, domed by purple haze and red stars, and beset by neon fuchsia and deadly yellow, my awareness began to crack. I had breathed in some of the spores. Guy crawled up next to me, and together we dragged Boss with us. Barely reaching hard stone with her limp body, we collapsed among the other exhausted men and lay breathing and recovering. Like the much smaller stone face back on that island, this stone was real. We'd made a grave mistake in relying on everything else to remain constant, even in this particular dream world. This reality was more real than other dreams, but still not real real, like the stone of the Weathered Watcher. This stone would not change. They'd chosen the location for their factory well. But we were not all present. Looking around as my spinning awareness began to settle, I realized we were one short. One man had not made it back. We gazed out in horror at the quick flowers, but they were already fading back into sand, and we had no way of knowing where he had sunk or how deep he had gone. He'd be crushed and suffocated, even then, as an endless mass of breezy stems became solid once again, and a beautiful but horrible way to die. 
Boss seemed somber. Leaning on her arm and staring at the dunes, she said, If he remembered his training, he'll have taken his caffeine overdose pill to try and wake up. He might have made it. But the flowers had knocked us unconscious within a dream. The disturbing implications of that ability haunted me on our long walk back up the tunneling steps. This place was far more real than other dreams. Was that how we'd been able to be affected so? I think everyone knew he'd sunken into those flowers while passed out. There had been no chance to use the caffeine pill. Boss hadn't been awake for our rescue, but she knew what had happened. Once we reached the factory again and the other men went back to work with solemn unhappiness, she pulled the two of us aside. What's with you two? After exchanging a glance with Guy, I asked, What do you mean? I was also suddenly aware, with her close, that she was rather ridiculously beautiful. Raven-haired, pale skin, and a bit ghastly and direct in manner, she was a ghoulish and capable woman, maybe five years older than I was. I'd never really looked at her before, in the same way that I'd never really looked at most people. You should have left me to die, she told us. That's the procedure I set out for all employees here. Caffeine pills as a last resort, strict protocols never to go anywhere alone, and direct orders to not risk yourselves for other people. I'm trying to keep you young punks alive out here. Guy reacted negatively. If we hadn't done that, you'd be dead now. She moved threateningly close and stood taller than him for a moment. You don't know if I'm real. None of us know if anyone else here is real. You may have risked your life for a figment of your imagination. That stunned him into silence. She sighed. We don't usually hire anything but scum who are more than happy to ditch their colleagues. You two are too good to stay here. I'm sorry, but you gotta go. Guy's silence ended as quickly as it had begun. What? No, I... We... I held up a hand. Relax, Guy. She means she's promoting us. She grinned, displaying two perfect wide rows of bone-white teeth. You're failing up, boys. We helped unload the next ship that came in from the south and then replaced its cargo with our presence. The crew paid us no mind, for Boss went with us to ensure our arrival at the other end would go smoothly. It's no bother, she said. I consider it a vacation to get out of that steel hellhole for a night. Tracking below the seventh and eastmost blue beam, we sailed the skies over that quiet and endless desert. It was only now that I was leaving that I had the wherewithal to realize that I'd never seen the sun or daylight here. It had always been purple haze and red-starred night. Now that I was aware of that oddity, I also noticed that I'd never seen a moon. My first impression of the place had been colored by the rising moon that I'd seen behind the glass gateway that had led us here. I leaned on the railing and watched as the crowned stone face receded into the distance. From this angle, it finally seemed to be paying attention to me. From this angle, it looked concerned for my fate. Strange that it would only now try to warn us, and not when we were running around outside its unmoving innards or dying beneath its chin. 
Guy joined me at the rail to watch the factory shrink onto the horizon. Boss leaned there too, though I hadn't noticed her arrival. She breathed in a sweet-scented purple air and closed her eyes for several heartbeats. <sighs> Better than the air back at the factory, I joked, but she turned and looked at me with utter seriousness. Yes, it is. You boys better treasure what you have while you have it. Everything smells tainted of smoke to me. Guy and I looked at her for a brief moment. We saw her as she truly was. Twice as old, gums rotting, skin sagging, hair falling out, lungs weak, heart dying. The image vanished, and she was disgustingly beautiful once more. You're never going back to real life, are you? Guy asked. She shook her head. Life's no kind of life when you're hooked up to machines all day. And yet, she laughed and gestured back at the oily, dirty, and smoky factory that was now far out of sight. I knew Guy was going to impulsively ask her to come with us then, to escape that second cruel prison of technology and join us on our journey, but I shook my head and he fell silent. We had a mission, his mission, and complications would only endanger our chances of rescuing his friend. I've been wrong about the moon, though. This place did have one. It just didn't move. As the curve of the earth fell away, we sailed under that blue beam and deeper into the sky, approaching a disk that slowly became wider as we grew closer into the purple haze. Those seven shafts shot straight forward toward it, unwavering, their only motion that constant glimmer of strings within strings that beams of silent light held as part of their innate visual music. The moon grew even larger. Our speed increased. Guy and I gripped to the rails while the crew worked at a frenzied pace and Boss raised her arms with excitement. As the acceleration became overpowering and lunar, white filled our vision, Guy screamed. Are you going to smash into it? Through, Boss yelled back. A vast caldera opened up before us, and we followed our lone beam deep into a tremendous crack in the skin of the moon itself. Darkness fell, blacker than any simple absence of light, and only that pulsating blue above lit our hands before our eyes. Ahead, a whirling void flared into existence and the ship sailed toward it as we clutched carved wood and hoped with all of our inner animal desperation that we would survive whatever was about to happen. We'd earned our way to a deeper layer of dream, one closer to our goal, but I had the distinct sense we were going to dislike our prize very much. And then the blackest black was past, and we sailed through mere gloom. Ahead, a palace of light hung from the shadows above, and the ship pulled slowly up to a dock, visible only by its shimmering white outlines. While the crew dry-heaved and clutched to their stomachs, Guy and I vomited over the side. Inglorious, yes, but we'd survived the transition to something strange, foul, and wondrous. Or perhaps survived was not the word. Boss led us forward to a waiting figure on that outline and lights, that dock that both did exist and did not exist. I'm not your boss anymore, boys, she said, her tone proud and sad. 
This time there was no avoiding his piercing ruby gaze. The silhouette of death awaited us with folded hands. I opened the glove compartment to grab and swallow a couple of relaxants, and then, after a moment's consideration, followed it with a gulp of week-old coffee from my middle cup holder. The last thing I wanted was to fall asleep. My phone began to ring in anticipation of delivery of a similar sentiment. My partner had been a few steps away in the dream world, but that many layers deep distance equivalence had become almost random. It had taken me the better part of an hour to hike back to my car. There was no guessing where he had ended up. That was him! Guy shouted. That was death! He couldn't see it, but I nodded weakly. I know. And I also know that they're going to think it's highly suspicious that we took our emergency caffeine pills and bailed the moment we saw... him. We'll play it off like we just panicked for a moment, Porter. I mean, we did. Wait, you aren't planning to go back, are you? I'm not stopping until I find Gabby. This was a prime example of the problem with partnering with amateurs. The jig's up, guy. We're not going to bullshit our way past death himself. He wouldn't or couldn't hear me. You can hang back if you want, but I have to do this. You've got your own supply of Remy, right? I sighed as he answered in the affirmative. Then I wish you luck. If that's the way it's gotta be, he said. Then thanks. I couldn't have gotten it this far without your help. Sure. I replaced his voice with a gnawing sense of failure and guilt. And that was that. My larger-than-life quest was over. The real world was my home again, and I had to get used to mosquito bites, exhaustion, and unrelenting sameness. I scratched the bumps above my ankles where bugs had gotten in during my walk back through the woods. The engine grumbled, gravel kicked, and I was back on the road. From past experience with long benders, I expected an oncoming train that would wreck me mentally and physically for days, but none seemed to be looming as I headed back to the city. Caffeine and nicotine withdrawal would be my only enemies, but I'd been smoking real cigarettes in the dream world, and I'd just taken a mega dose of the other by pill and coffee. Was Remy really that mild of a drug? I was shaky and out of it from the stress of what I'd been through, but I actually felt alright. The traffic was sparse, too, and I made great time. As I blazed along the open highway under the afternoon sun, I first marveled at the lack of other drivers. And then I began to look at the other side of the road in my rearview mirror. For the better part of an hour, I saw nobody at all. Had I actually come back into the real world? Reaching the edge of the city, I pulled into a gas station and practically ran inside. My fears fell away as a clerk glanced up briefly from a magazine. I straightened my clothing and asked in a nonchalant manner as I could muster, 
where is everyone? The clerk pointed to a muted television within his little blocked off area. Game's on. I leaned against the plastic barrier to get a better angle and saw a stadium three quarters full. That's live? He looked at me like I was an idiot. Yeah? I swallowed down my sense of unease, thanked him, and turned away. Having spent so much time in words mutable and ever-evolving, I suppose it was only natural to question base reality. It occurred to me that I was starving. Moving through the aisles, I let myself pick out things I'd avoided for years. My childhood self had enjoyed honey buns. Why not? And then there was a Slim Jim, grabbed without hesitation. Do you got zebra cakes? The clerk leaned forward to ask. Are there any in that aisle? I shook my head. Then no. Right. I took my vending machine quality loot, paid, and sat in my car and ravaged the various treats. Each tasted glorious, and I couldn't help but feebly grasp at memories of fading sensations of those imaginary foodstuffs I'd eaten in the dream world. Clearly, I'd survived on something, but it was all evaporating in the manner that most dreams tended to dissipate. The radio, too, was an incredible opera to newly virgin ears. My favorite stations played the same old songs as always, but they held a new impetus now. Looking out the window, the cracked sidewalk looked very permanent and real, and the afternoon sky was searingly beautiful. I hated to admit it, but I'd miss the real world. For all its pains and flaws, it relied on no one. It had existed before me, and it would exist after me. There was something calming in that. I didn't have to prove myself to it or defend it. It would simply exist. Or had I read that sentiment in a book somewhere? I brushed Twinkie remains from my shirt and decided to start up the car and get back on the road. The play of the light as I turned on the car fascinated me. In a flash, I remembered this feeling. I had felt it with so many interactions that had been new and intriguing back when I'd been young. I could distinctly remember this emotion when a very young version of myself had continually pushed a plastic boat down into the bathtub water and watched the bubbly liquid flow in and out through numerous little windows and gaps. It was physics. My brain learning, my mind growing, my inner self compelling new data. I'd been away long enough to become new again. It was an opportunity. I was pluripotent. This shitty and depressed person I'd been was now falling away with the shell of dreams already disintegrating at the edges of my thoughts. I didn't have to be that man anymore. Checking my phone for the first time as I pulled into the parking lots. How had I not done that yet? I saw that it was two days late for paying my rent. No worries. Nothing could stress me now. Pulling out some stashed cash from various places in my apartment, I slipped an envelope on the landlord's door slot and left a note with a smiley face on it. What to do now? I had the whole world open to me. I decided to go for a walk. The streets were clean and quiet. As before, nobody else was around. No cars passed while I walked. Well, there was one. 
I relaxed for a time, but the second one did not go by for another 20 minutes. The day was beautiful, and there should have been an annoyingly huge number of joggers, dog walkers, and children, even in my less-than-stellar neighborhood. Prompted by a growing pit in my stomach, I headed back home to where my note continued to smile at an empty hallway. I knocked on my landlord's door and waited. I knocked a second time and waited. I shouted loudly and looked up and down the hallway. I began pounding on random doors. Finally, I began kicking them in. The building was empty. Upon the last kicked-in door, I felt a terrible cold descend upon my heart. I was alone. In a space where I'd previously been quiet and weary of others, I was now the only person present. In that instant, the entire feel of the place changed from comfortable communal dwelling to silent and empty maze. In fact, the more I thought about it, the more I realized the world itself was taking on that same feeling. The streets in my building were not empty simply because of a game. Sure, tens of thousands of people remained to go watch a sporting event, but that was a misleading concentration. And something was still very wrong. As I sat out beside the quiet parking lot and listened to the wind, I knew I was back in. The phone was already in my hand. Wait for me. Yeah. I have to see this through to the end. We bought replacement caffeine pills just in case, and then drove out to the location in the woods we believed best fit that eerie dock. As the sun's evening blaze began to dim, we took it Remy and waited. The shadow-casting trees faded into a new kind of gloom, one backlit by glowing white lines and pitch blackness. Our ship was gone, as was death. In his place, and vaguely lit by that remaining single beam of dark blue light high above, stood a man wearing a white suit and a calm smile. Whereas in our last reality physics had been somewhat more concrete, here interpersonal relations seemed less a fog. For the first time, I actually perceived and remembered meeting our new boss rather than simply becoming slowly aware of him over time while we worked. boss reassured us, worry not about having fled for a day. Every single one of us panicked at the sign of boss when we first came here, even me. Come. Within the walls of the hanging place, we tread upon blackness outlined in white and shadows traced by light. The grounds and inner hallways were not upside down as I'd assumed. The palace hung from unseen solidity high above, but with such construction had been done out of necessity rather than twisted dream logic, we could see that there was nothing but infinite void below. Each step elicited hesitance, for how could we tell what services were material when only their outlines were visible? The boss reassured us, Fear not your step. Eyes evolved to serve us in another realm. Here you must ignore them. Look not. Instead, simply know. Such is the nature of dreams. He was right. 
In some places, the outlines were too far away to aid in sussing out the lay of a surface, but I let go of that need and began walking as I might in a dream. It was all there. I just needed to let it exist, and it did. Without even looking at it, I marveled at a beautiful tapestry that had formerly been nothing but complex lines of white light. There were still no colors, but the picture was an idea, and I implicitly knew what that idea was. Who is she? Boss smiled, but did not answer. We were led to the far wing of the palace where numerous laboratories were in operation. Men and women used strange devices to combine noxious and horrifying liquids comprised of various distilled nightmares and fears. Other contraptions focused collecting radiance from the dark blue beam of light high above us, visible right through the transparent palace walls into some kind of dripping extract of the same hue. The last ingredient was handled very carefully and I looked up to take note of the fierce blue fire within that high beam. I knew now we were close to the source. Boss reassured us. Don't be intimidated by this complexity, for it is not your task. These are merely your colleagues. For the first time, we were not handling the product from further down the line. Here, our job was to package, handle, and send what looked like Remy's proto-liquid form back to factories, like the one at which we had previously worked. Although we didn't have the chemistry skills like those in the basement laboratories, I could see why this was a trusted position for men like us. At any time, we could simply hold a crate of the stuff, wake up, run off with it. Interconscious security was more or less impossible, and now I understood why this organization had been built so heavily on trust. One crate of this proto-liquid given to the right authority could end the Remy trade forever. Boss was lucky we were here for our own ends. Guy, I whispered as we stood at the ray-traced dock among a hundred crates and waited for the next ship. Found anything? He shook his head subtly. It's only been two weeks, though. I know she's close. I can feel her out there. In pain. I glanced back at the palace where Death stood in a high parapet of beautifully carved white light and watched the distance with those piercing ruby eyes. Seeing him always made the hair on the back of my neck stand on end. What's the next step? We wait, Guy replied with no small frustration. How do you even know where next is, let alone what it might be? My gut instinct says it's further down that beam. We couldn't turn and look up at it, with death hovering over our shoulders, but we always knew where it was. It burned its presence into our minds like a bug zapper, humming on a porch on a mosquito-filled summer night. Here, every so often, it flared and lit each of us in a dark blue. One month passed, and then a second. Guy reached his wit's end. I tried to stop him, but he was possessed now by fury born too much of time spent dwelling on the pain his friend was suffering. He stalked out to the perpendicular gardens, and hoping to keep him from dooming us, I followed. Moss was there among the outlines of strange angular plants, but his calm demeanor was absent and his white suit was in disarray. He 
stabbed repeatedly at various traced silhouettes, a small child, a man, a woman, and more. Each scream sprayed glowing white blood across his suit and then vanished. We stared. He slowly regained his composure, straightened his clothing, fixed his hair, coughed once, and then regarded us with his usual calm smile. It is my turn not to fear, for I trust that you two will not mention this to your colleagues. Guy nodded, but asked, Boss? He stomped halfway to the exit from the gardens and said, Yes? Guy pointed. What's up there? What's the source of that blue light? I've often wondered myself. He took a deep breath and then sighed in the manner of a mantra. You know what? You two are the only ones around here I don't want to stab. Why don't we go see for ourselves? Guy and I exchanged worried glances, but this was finally an opportunity. For the first time, we left the main floor in ventilated basement hallways. We could still see our colleagues down in the labs toiling away, but it was much easier to look down than it was to look up. Here, too, we began to hear a subtle song. Boss lightly twanged one of the outlines of a door. Up here, the white lions sing. I wondered whether it was a natural effect of hanging tension in the lines, or whether the workers had been specifically denied that haunting but positive music. Death was not in his palace today, but I would likely not have asked him anyway. I had never yet heard him speak, and his direct gaze instilled paralyzing terror every time, no matter how much I prepared myself. We reached that high parapet and then looked out across the sea of darkness. Here, the blue beam was closer, but still far out of reach. With nothing new to see, we investigated the ceiling of each lavish room, where the solidity above had become the roof. There. Guy pointed to a hatch made of dark metal, the first non-outline object we'd seen in this place. We slid a silhouette of a very fancy table over and stood on it carefully, as we could, to avoid damaging it despite it just being black, and the three of us managed to lift ourselves up into the chamber to the rock above. At first, we stood in complete darkness. Each of us took out mundane objects from the palace and used their outlined light to see ahead. Through snaking tunnels curving and narrow, we made our way single file. The past began adding up, and we walked for a time beyond measure. None of us protested for we had certainly transgressed by now, and we were set on seeing what there was to be seen rather than face punishment empty-handed. Knowledge could not be taken away. We came to a wider cleft, and then emerged into a roaring tunnel of glaring dark blue. The beam had cut directly through the rock at this height, and we could nearly reach out and touch the massive cylinder of flaring blue whose sheer energy brought with it incredible winds. But wisely, we kept our hands to ourselves and inched along the warm stone. The rock fell away and we peered down along the carved bumps and familiar pattern in the stone. We had climbed up into a titanic stone face, and we were now looking down into the void from its eye, where the beam had penetrated straight through. For that reason, I was sure the direction of the monolith was facing, 
These ancient guideposts had not yet been wrong. Guy spoke first, ecstatic. Do you smell that? I breathed in distant salt and moisture. It's the ocean, he shouted, barely audible over the roar of that dark blue flame surging past us. We're close. Our goal was finally in scent, if not in sight. Beside us, Boss gazed out along the beam and into the endless void. It's a beautiful sight. And this is the first true privacy I've ever had in this damn transparent castle. I never thought. He shook his head. I want you boys to know that I'm not some sort of twisted freak. What I was doing back there in the perpendicular gardens. I was born broken. I fought the urge toward violence my entire life, and I found the dream world before I cracked. I heard illusions to calm the storm inside. He touched his suit. No bloodstains. I remain pure. Guy regarded him with compassionate sincerity. We won't tell. But those in the labs, they can see you, can't they? Boss laughed. <laughs> the gardens are too complex, intricate, and bright. They can't possibly tell what I'm doing from afar. That made sense. I, too, shrugged. This man had found safe haven within. I'd likely hurt more people myself than he had. Who was I to judge him? We made our way back down, closed the hatch, and returned to our jobs. It seemed that no one had noticed our temporary absence, or if they had, they hadn't cared enough to say anything about it. For days in that shadowed palace of light, Guy and I discussed plans for following the beams closer to its source, and we could only come to one conclusion. We had to hijack a ship and sail it further on. But before we could plan anything solid, we were summoned to the rear courtyard. Here, dark blue flared and lit our concerned faces, but there was no one to greet us. When we turned to leave, Boss was there and shook his head. I saw blue static emerge on my hands and felt ultimate paralysis hold me fast. Dark feet echoed on dark surfaces, and Death himself approached from high rooms in the Palace of Light. Guy managed to force out. How could you? Boss reassured us one final time. You aren't in trouble. What we did was part of my duties, and you were curious where others were content and ignorance. For that, I'm no longer your boss. He looked at each of us in turn. I feel a weight lifted, knowing that someone else knows. Please, remember me kindly. He politely cowered away as our new boss approached. He stood there before us, an infinitely black silhouette of a man with piercing ruby points for eyes, and at long last those eyes regarded us directly. The force of animal fear inside me rose to an overwhelming pressure, and I would have screamed or panicked had that blue shock not held us in place. He looked at Guy, and Guy threw fierce anchor back with his gaze as he strained to move. He looked at me, and I saw an endless ruby expanse down which the glittering memories of all mankind would one day pass. But for reasons beyond my direct comprehension at that moment, I was suddenly no longer afraid. At this, death 
tilted his head ever so slightly. He had no mouth, but we heard him thus. I believe that I should punish your curiosity by rewarding you with the knowledge you unknowingly sought. Would you like to see what is beyond this protective veil of shadow? The paralysis lifted. We were allowed to move. I looked at Guy and nodded. I would not deny him this. Not now. Guy looked to me, and then to death. He answered that doom with both fear and determination. Yes. We dashed across latticed remains of tarred skyscraper roofing beneath racing domed star lines. I'd never felt such urgency for speed, nor had my heart ever threatened to beat out of my chest so forcefully. Yet the only breeze was our own, and utter tranquility gripped the world. A canyon between monolithic edifices yawned open ahead, but Guy screamed refusal and ran even faster. He was either rewarded or lucky, for the vines sprouting up around us to the pace of a time-lapse violin now surged, joined, and thickened between two high man-made ledges. Sweat-drenched, red-faced from angry exertion, and heedless, he sprinted toward without hesitation. I had different motivations than he, but I, too, gave more than my all. This mattered. The whole great span of our screaming lot of monkeys had slowly left this globe to its own writhing natural furies, and there was no one left to care or remember, for it mattered little in the end. But for this one need, this one subject, a heart was at stake. That made it personal. That made it matter. Tired old mechanisms and slack-jawed tubes rusted and reclined as we passed among them. One of these, still standing tall with the pride of the last soldier on watch, refused to sprout iron oxide and melt like his fellows. Without moving, he approached rapidly, gave us a dull chrome nod, and then receded into the distance, playing us a few low groaning notes to remind us that the corbantic violin was ever on our heels. A tempest came and went in an instant with the smacking force of a thousand winds, but the momentary chill only refreshed us and urged us across another gap. Soggy but for a heartbeat, we dried as we leapt and the tower behind us tilted in defeat as our own rose with the shifting of the land underneath. It lifted us higher and forward, aiming to smash us against the titan of glass ahead, but Guy stood his ground and I braced with him. There had to be trust, there had to be faith, or at least there had to be desperation and luck. The forward edge of our greystone ledge approached its own image in the cliff of mirrors ahead, meeting to annihilate its twin with a thunderous crash reminiscent of the tempest. We leapt into the interior rooms while the two buildings slowly began to merge by sheer weight. Where once there had been a wide wooden door, there was... Not even a trace of rot, and Guy climbed a low angle to emerge into the hallway ahead of me while the vines grew in after us and began scurrying away what traces of humanity remained. Daring to spare only an instant to take in the ink imprint the map on the hallway had left on the plastic, he careened around filthy corners and jumped over fallen metal bed frames and trays, up the sleek white slope, then 
left while stumbling between angled wall and floor, and then further up to the room at the end of the hall as the building tilted further. The flickering sky strobed hellacious energy through the far window as we climbed, but I pushed from behind, and Guy fought his way right into that visual chaos. This last barrier he would not abide. He leaned over the remains of her bed, where they'd fallen among the debris collecting in the V-shaped bottom of the room beneath the floor and wall. Gabby! She was pale, wan, and unconscious with that permanent expression of pain on her face, but she was alive. Guy lifted her in his arms as the hospital trembled deeply beneath our shoes. I looked at him as he looked at me. The only way out was obvious, but unappealing. My heart adopted a machine gun's fury to match the violin as we ran up the steeply sloped floor of the room, broke the glass with a metal wreckage, and leapt out into the flickering of day and night. The breeze now was not our own, but that of granted acceleration. As I slid alongside Guy, I held my arm up to block out the mad sky and see ahead. The wall of mirror windows on this side of the building was still intact, and their framing lines, at first slow visual indicators, began to whip past us at a primally frightening pace. I reached out my arms and legs, but there was nothing to slow our quickening descent. The hospital had been enormously tall, but we were already at a deadly pace, and we would reach the ground like three foolish meteors shooting down from the heavens. Despite his outstretched feet, Guy began to spin. The weight of the unconscious girl in his arms gave him a sideways acceleration that quickly threw him into a tumble, and he lost her to her own rapid slide along our course. I pulled Remy from my pocket in desperation as the horizons rose around us, but Guy screamed over the wind. No! She'll go back to where her mind is! The shadows of other high buildings cloaked us from the strobing sky. We streaked deeper into the darkness. I began to rotate myself. I shouted, So we do nothing? He kept his gaze on the blazing line, shooting in and under, his eyes terrified but determined. Yes, we'll find a way. What was I to do? I wasn't about to abandon him now, even as horrific doom grew unstoppably larger in our field of vision. On a whipping spin, I managed to grab the girl's wrist, and her weight stabilized my rotation. This was it. There were no more actions to take, as the violin of time's race caught up to us. But its own power freed us. The hospital finally gave up the ghosts of civilization and collapsed fully onto its side. Glass shattered upwards behind us like so many walls of madly sparkling water, but our tremendous velocity carried us away from the impact until the slight friction of the horizontal windows finally brought us to a gasping stop, mere feet from the jagged edge of the building's roots, now exposed to the elements. Not stopping to dwell on our luck, he picked her up and jumped down into the rapidly growing jungle. Responding to our weight as they grew, the branches moved beneath us like active footholds, and we ran down spiraling, living staircases until we reached the trembling earth. There was nothing left to say. Despite all our stamina having been expended just to reach her, we ran with an impossible second wind through the airs of mankind's rule. Streets shifted with changes underground as we rose. 
weather ate away at concrete and metal and we sank. We reached the edge of the city and we fell. Exhausted, we lay on either side of the girl and tried to still our racing hearts as rapid high notes played my home city into decaying non-existence of the music of time. I managed to stand on weak and shaky legs, but by then, no trace remained. Life continued to spring anew around us. Bushes sprouted and bloomed. Trees arose with the air of respectable gentlemen making illustrious entrances, and dead leaves layered themselves apace around my shoes, threatening to entrap me if I stayed still for too long. Guy staggered up and asked, Where can we put her? I wanted to find some spark of brilliance and figure out a creative solution, but the pace of the world made it fairly clear humanity was gone and nowhere was safe for an unconscious girl. There might have been a few scattered people left on the globe, those that had been incapacitated long-term and with no loved ones to feed them a pill, those too afraid to go with the rest of their species, and those inevitable rare counterculture individuals humanity had once built inspiration upon. But we would find none of them in time. Go, I told him. You meet death first. I'll wait here with her. When you get back, I'll take my turn, if you haven't already rescued her soul. Her mind, he countered softly, his gaze on her pained face. I said, right, but I hardly meant it. He clenched the fists and downed enough Remy to vanish promptly. I was left alone, the furiously growing wilds of earth emptied. I picked her up and began walking, but the direction didn't matter. The world was savage, even now, and I would find respite only if I built it. Finding a careful, sparse grove, I direct the limbs of the trees with my hands as I had my feet in our escape, and I curved them into a solid little house. Denied light, the grasses and bushes within melted away of their own accord, and I used a small raw stone to hew at a large raw stone until it became somewhat like a bed. Protected from the elements, it would not weather away. On this, I laid her down, for nothing living would serve either of us now. It was a rough life, but at the very least, the blur of night and day had become an even calm glow that suffused everything at once with starlight, moonlight, and sunlight, in a combination perfectly pleasing to the senses. If I wanted warmth, I focused on the sunlight. If I wanted cool... I focused on the starlight. If I wanted peace, the moon gave it to me in its own rhythm. At times I took small amounts of Remy in order to once again experience dreams in some limited fashion, for I'd lost the ability myself. I wandered the shifting valleys, climbed the rising and falling mountains, and bathed in ocean waters blasting forward and back with comical force. I tried to build a sandcastle like I had once in my youth, but the shore melted away under my hands before I could do so much as lay a second handful. And so, complete a scene, civilization was over. The real world and the dream world had lost all distinction, for the human race had found such a separation no longer useful and discarded it. It was one of those... Remy-fueled wanderings that I sighted another person. She stood unmoving on the shore until she noticed me and beckoned me with amazed need. 
I approached and focused on the starlight around me. This energy of night strengthened her image. She was one of the dead. I said, I haven't seen a spirit in a very long time. I assumed most of them had their unfinished business taken care of in the final days. She nodded, but a hand brought me closer and she whispered in my ear. I smiled. You must have seen me try. I can't build a sandcastle. Her expression fell, as did mine, when I realized she was serious. All right, I told her. I'll try. She brightened immediately, and I scooped up sand and dumped it in a pile at my feet. Torn away by the cycle of tides and surf, it vanished instantly. Laughing awkwardly, I moved further up the beach and tried again. Blasted by the cycle of winds and weather, it vanished instantly. Determined now, I ran further, always making sure to stay inside of her. How long had she been alone? Leaving her there by herself for all that time was unthinkable. Carefully, I took the trees and guided them into wide walls. A small hut would not suffice. An era passed while I shaped the entire forest's edge and shoreline into a maze of windbreaks that would last a century. Eager now, I slammed a handful of sand down and then another. She gave a slight sigh of happiness and vanished. She'd never really needed a sandcastle. She just needed to know that she was not alone. Smiling, I sauntered home. It wasn't so much a good deed that gave me lightness, but the assuaging of pain unknowable. This I had never considered in my previous life. On one knee and weak, Guy awaited me at home. He kneeled over her, watching, and she woke. He turned to me with haunted features. Whatever he had seen with death, it had cost him dearly. I could only ask, was it worth it? He gave a slow nod and I watched the tautness of his pale skin as he spoke. Thank you. We've been partners beyond understanding. And friends. I shook his hand sincerely. For all her weakness and torture now over, she smiled up at me. He took Remy with the last of his strength and gave her the rest of his supply. They both disappeared from sight without so much as a sound. That was it. I was done. There was nothing left. I wandered outside and watched in particular the white beam of the moon circling overhead at blinding speeds. I didn't have to visit with death. There was no longer anyone to save. How could I risk going through what Guy had gone through? I could see the nightmare he'd endured in his eyes, but a complete lack of motivation and goal was itself a motivator. There would be no new experiences here. I did not truly have a choice. Forward was the only direction. I took enough Remy and awaited the change. 
Death stood in the rear courtyard awaiting me in turn. He had not moved from the position I had last seen him in, as far as I could tell, or he had returned to it, or time was less straightforward than I expected in this place. Thus was the nature of dreams, to pick up where they'd left off, sometimes even many years later. Here, I could directly hear the frantic notes of time's violin winding down the universe. Was this part of death's function? He spoke thus. Your companion braved what is beyond this protective veil of shadow and survived. He lost much, but was already consumed entirely by motivation, and therefore preserved. Will you do the same? I had no motivation, but I also had no other direction. No, I told him. Despite his pure silhouette and pinpoint ruby eyes, I thought I detected a hint of smile about him. In some way, although Guy had won through and succeeded, my answer had been correct. He raised his hand and summoned a railed, ray-traced platform of light from the darkness below. On this, he stepped and silently bade me follow. Without fear, but with adrenaline-fueled anticipation, I climbed aboard. Against the rail, we stood at the forefront of the irregular outline surface. The chunk on which we soared made me wonder if the silhouette and ray-traced designs were actually some sort of strange stone or metal. It was chill to the touch, but lacked true coldness in the way a void might. We shot up to the burning blue beam above and then along it, spearing into the night cloak that protected Death's abode. The wind alone threatened to tear me from my perch, but I held on to the rail with all my might. Death himself stood with a slight forward lean, the only indication that he was physically present at all. His ruby eyes remained focused ahead as the shroud lifted. Keep your eyes on your hand for the moment, he said as we rocketed into open skies lit brightly in blue. This you must know before you look. What rides here is the truth. Your truth as a human being. If you look upon it, you can never take back what you see. Do you understand? There had never been a violin of time. It had always been my heart playing that insanely paced music with its high notes of urgency and inherent desperate call to immediate action. Time was short. Time had always been short. In my chest, my heart pumped madder now than before, and I screamed into the wind, I do! Then go. Face the beast, and tell me what you find. This was the drop. Our railed rock shook mightily. The world itself trembled as we penetrated the tremendous cyclone wall, raging around an unseen core. This was it. This was the beast that had searched for me when I dared to have a kernel of hope amidst nightmare. I opened my eyes wide and snapped my head up to take in what had always been hidden from mortal eyes. Gabby had been the first to see it, and then Guy. 
now I alone remained to face truth. It had never been a violin. It had always been a Mobius. One-sided, twisted, in the shape of a violin, yes, but with time's lunatic passions played out against it as high notes as the humans had once heard as seconds, minutes upon our earlier return, hours as we'd run to the city, days as we'd run for Gabby's hospital, and then years, decades, more, all racing by with a hysterical fury as the pitch, lacking minds to hear it, echoed upon itself and heightened exponentially. And still, our pitiful little rock shook in the maw of the hurricane, and Death, displaying the first true emotions I'd ever heard from him, shouted, What do you see? Was reality itself shaking? I soared over the hills and valleys and mountains of the infant earth as it bubbled and shifted and changed. The moon spun away and cooled, the oceans formed below, the celestial bodies careened around the sun, that yellow heart grew larger and red, and I shot up through the nebulae and galaxies of existence to watch them spin faster and faster, more frantic now with each passing rapid note. There were clocks, atoms, molecules, planets, solar systems, galaxies, superclusters. They were all clocks, faster and faster with hands blurring. The limitless raging cyclone thinned to reveal the eye of the storm, and I tried to turn to death to ask where the beast was, but I understood when I could not turn away. I had expected the beast to be a blue or perhaps green creature of monstrous proportions and waving tentacles. I had expected a maw, teeth, a massive void eye searching out hope and annihilating it all with the pains of existence. Torrents battered us, and death turned his head against the sheer force, sending us around the whirling inside of the cosmic storm beyond all proportions. His emotion. He was keeping us afloat. This meant something to him, and our time here was short. Faster, always faster. Time was always shorter than we ever knew. If we knew, it was again shorter than that. My universe of clocks spiraled crazily down into the darkness, into nothing at all, each basic particle scattered into eternal night and then non-existence. But still, I rocketed upward, piercing veil after veil. Beneath our shaking, pitiful rock, countless universes spiraled exactly as their clocks inside. Destruction. Rebirth. A bubbling sea of struggle, pain, procreation, and futility. My arms burned as I set my physical body to the task of holding on against the colossal gales as my mental eyes lost all sense of orientation. Up, up into the worlds of dreams. For no existence so vast could be mere rocks and gas ad infinium. Bubbles upon bubbles, spheres upon spheres, layers through which I spiked at terrifying speeds, trembling with the sheer force of it all. Modes of existence, red and blue, and every other color and more, spanned off to my left, spanned off to my right, and formed an illimitable horizon. And still we rose, truly on some sort of rocket, for all its painful vibration and my screaming. And then... Calm. 
the apex of the spearing flight of truth had come, and I floated momentarily and eternally at the height of all that was. But I was not alone. In truth, and in truth, I'd never moved at all. In a mind whose size, by definition, defied definition, whose size would always be bigger than any measure assigned to it, I was a single neuron. Trillions, quadrillions more. We burned like little stars here in the mind of... What? I could remember them. He could remember me. So many lives, so many eras and existences. Not everyone, not all that had ever lived, but a great number of them. I could feel their memories, their souls, glimmering out there and up close to me in one great big nest of life and cognition beyond understanding. Save for that we each, in this mind, shared some common core that made us, in the end, one. We were not the lovers, nor the survivor, nor the pyrrhic artist, or the well-meaning hero, or the ruthless parents, nor any other. But we were us, and we were very special to the consciousness at the seat of this mind. With his cosmic senses, I sensed, remembered, others like him all around in the vast rows and columns as I understood it, all sleeping. In a form of existence larger than any other yet infinitely small, these one trillion male and female giants with skin of cerulean blue slept for hope, slept for peace, slept for understanding. Blood ran down my nose, but I spoke in awe with my jaw and my mouth and the small, oh-so-small pieces of muscle and bone that made me. They dream so that we may live. Near the end of his strength, death forced his shout against the wind. Which one are you? Does he stir? Stir? No, these... Gendered gods were existence itself, and existence was them. If they ever awoke, this would all end in the same manner as a dream, and they would die. The dream would end, but even in sleep, he was there. I felt him like an aura that permeated my consciousness, that permeated my entire life, for I had always been some infinitesimally small part of this entity beyond comprehension. He was, I am, we are, the caretaker. And I could see. Death tore us away from the storm of truth, from the beast, and silence fell as we slipped back into the protective veil of night around his castle. I had not seen in my visions that the rock on which we'd flown had been worn to barefoot-sized chunks by the sheer strength of which we had braved. We stumbled off it and let it fall into forever darkness, and I sat with death on opposite sides of the bright blue beam as it cracked overhead on its journey through the massive stone face from which his castle hung. Here we had privacy. Here no being would know of what we spoke. Gasping death laughed weakly. We made it. You're not like I expected, I told him, trying to catch my breath. I am your death, he countered. 
Humanity's death. I am what you made me. I frowned. So there are others. He nodded, his silhouette head weakly, and his ruby eyes closed for a moment. Many others. Then what happens to you when none of us are left? Like all things do in time, I too fade. He turned his head to watch the direction from which we had come. But there were important things to do before I go. Bringing you intrepid few to the beasts was one of them. Feeling a little better and sitting up, I asked, For what purpose? He laughed. (laughs) I loved ones. We're not allowed to do that. Allowed? Everybody answers to somebody, he said mysteriously before continuing. But in my case, you strange little creatures personified me rather exceptionally. It's hard not to develop emotions when your flock is making artwork of you, putting you in stories as a character, and even including you in movies. Have you ever seen Seventh Seal? I shook my head. A pity. I doubt the film still exists in your world now. It's been far too long. Still, his gaze remained on the distance. A notion crept upon me that his fatigue was not entirely from arduous flight. Are you vanishing even now? He gave another weak nod. You've all moved on to the higher realms. My final gift. I don't hope for a moment that you'll be safe there, but at least you're all free of the chains and shackles of reality for what time may be left. I stared at him, aghast. Is something bigger wrong? Yes. The energy of life bubbles and boils with a strength you wouldn't believe. Others that came before you told me of the dreamers, these trillion god entities that dream so that we may exist, and I've spent the tenure of your race's existence trying to learn more, for I suspected that one day even infinity would not be enough. He coughed ruby droplets onto stone, and I tried to reach out to him, but the blue beam between us crackled fiercely at my approach. One day, whether it be tomorrow or a trillion years from now, life's conflict and fury will escalate to an intensity so great that I fear the dreamers will awake. And that will be it. I took this news with a horrified, gnawing sensation in my chest. What can we do? What did you see? Nothing. I... I stopped mid-sentence. I had seen more. Especially in those final moments of unity. The images came to me with clarity. He told me. The caretaker told me. Reclining, unmoving against the opposite stone wall, death listened. I closed my eyes to focus. He can't know for sure, because he's not like them like he is me, but he gave me three images. The lovers circle opposite around a vast whirlpool of warm red water. 
They seek each other, but neither can see the other, save for a single message in a bottle that bobs hopelessly in the heat. The ruthless parent denied her child, cracks an orb of gold, and spills hatred and bitterness into a massive white whirlpool of light. And the survivor walks across his prison cell in a single step, but it takes all eternity. He arrives enlightened, but a black whirlpool awaits to steal away everything he ever knew. Death responded after a moment. I see nothing in my domain that might fit these prophecies. Prophecies? I grimace. No, it... He waved me into silence. I should take you now. I'm almost gone. What are we going to do about these people? Those prophecies? I asked. I'd never thought I'd be one to feel sad for death's imminent passing, but... He'd proven to be a person with goals and compassions all his own, just as we had made him out to be with our own beliefs. I can't go until I find them. The dreamers know not of time nor space. Those prophecies could occur tomorrow or a trillion years from now. He began slumping to one side. If you stay, I can never come for you. When the dolphins evolve and their death awakens, he will not come for you. When the beetles attain sentience and their death awakens, she will not come for you. You will stand alone for all time if you go back. As I processed his offer and the fate I would endure, I finally began to understand. I did have a motivation for all this. Despite all the bad things I've done in my life, in the end, I only found true happiness when I was taking care of others. I looked down at my hands and a sob came out of my chest of its own accord. And what's more, I am loved. He loves me. The caretaker knows anything and everything about me and he loves me. He accepts my flaws for they are his. He believes in me and I am his child. He's not God like our religions believed, but he's close enough for me. I have to believe that he showed me those things for a reason. Ever the Sisyphians you people are, I have no doubt it will be one of your kind who will ultimately put all existence in jeopardy simply because you refuse to be cowed. At the end of the day, that simple truth is what it's really all about. Existence wants you to break and bow down and you refuse. Beyond all logic, you refuse. Beyond all sanity, you refuse. You are the best kind of crazy. Death laughed kindly and then fully slumped into a blue-lit stone. Ah, <laughs> uh, humans. It's been... His silhouette faded to gray and his ruby eyes dimmed. Fun. After a quiet minute of silence, I arose with a purpose. I'd always had a purpose, but I'd only now realized it. My roomie was fading, and I let it go without regret. The world phased back into existence around me, and 
without the perpetual fusion of my dream and human awareness to fuel it, time had returned to a normal pace. It would be a very long time before the images of my patron god mine had shown me would come to pass. But I was finally at peace. There was no rush. Others had seen the truth and had been destroyed by the pain of it all. I myself had seen a sliver of the negative side of truth once before. I was small, I was nothing, and a lifetime of suffering would be visited upon those who had ever lived and all those who would ever live. Having now seen the whole truth, I had chosen to focus on one thing alone. I was loved, and I would be remembered. What had Gabby seen that had so incapacitated her? I would never know, but that was all right. If they had made it as high as I had, they would have met other god minds who would have had other things to show them or let them feel, things that would have been foreign to me. I wandered into the pure wilderness of Earth with an equally pure spirit. There was one other thing that needed doing in the meantime. In all the billions of years I would have to wait, no one else would do it. Not the dolphins, and certainly not the beetles. If there had been one ghost out there, that woman on the shore, then there must have been others. I would walk to the newly primal world and find them. Humanity's final cleaning up of the planets would be spiritual rather than physical, and it would free countless souls from an eternity spent standing in place alone. I'd find them, and one by one, take care of them.